Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who, sh who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, word, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would use every jot and tittle, every part of every verse, Lord, for your purposes to set us apart, to make us more like Christ, to help us to grow into maturity as believers, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we began last week when we started the Gospel of Matthew, we went over the fact that Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew, writing about Jesus being the Messiah. 
Thus, we will see many times the word fulfilled. That's one of the key words in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. It was fulfilled. And what Matthew is doing by the Holy Spirit is he is demonstrating to his Jewish audience that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament and he created a bridge by doing so in demonstrating that the promised Messiah, the promised Jewish Messiah was fulfilled and only can be fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah King. And that's why we'll see over and over again him talk about and use these words, the, king, the son of David, because he's demonstrating that the Messiah who was to sit on David's throne was uh, the king, uh, and is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he had to show that there was a bloodline, and we saw that last week with the lineage of, of the Lord Jesus Christ through his legal father, not his biological father, but his legal father, Joseph, that it traced all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also Judah, because that was the son of Jacob, uh, through whom the, the, the messianic line would, would tra- traverse. And so also he demonstrated that he is the son of David, that, that um, he was one of David's descendants. So that is non-negotiable. If you're going to believe Jesus is the Messiah, then you have to believe that he has the, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Judah, and David. And, 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 if, and if he isn't the Messiah, nobody's the Messiah. Because there's no records anymore of the lineages and so forth. And also, of course, all the amazing uh, prophecies that we see in the Old Testament. We also saw God intervene in Joseph's life. Joseph was like, what? The woman that I'm betrothed to is found with child? What am I going to do? Then some precedented in terms of hearing from an angel and a a dream or whatever that, that, that it's of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that uh, you don't have to put Mary away secretly. You don't have to write her a certificate of divorce as Moses allowed. You don't have to do that because it's of me. And sometimes God intervenes what we think is a certain situation. God shows, no, I am behind this. I am, uh, you know, the one that's orchestrating events. And so we saw that. Now today, we're looking at what happened after the Lord Jesus' birth. We're going to see the these magi that come from the east we're going to see their interaction with herod the great we're going to see them worship the lord jesus and we're going to see herod's plot to kill uh, the lord jesus and so we're really going to focus on the magi these wise men not wise guys that's us we're a bunch of wise guys these are wise men these are these are very highly esteemed men in their country that look to the stars We don't know much more about them other than that, Um, but they knew about the Lord Jesus, and they had come specifically to worship him. They had specifically come for that purpose, and we can learn a lot from their example to us of, of their worship of the Lord Jesus. These are Gentiles coming to worship the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah very purposeful it's 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 beautiful when you see it and we'll see it unfold now notice we have two kings in two verses as we begin in verse one now after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea in the days of herod the king behold wise men from the east came to jerusalem now it were in in the new king james it says behold and it means consider carefully that's what behold means in verse two 
they ask the question, where is he who is, has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, at once we see that they understood that he was born a king. He wasn't chosen in terms of man. He wasn't elected. He was born king. And that's true. They knew that. And they want to know the location. And they're saying, we saw his star. Notice it's his star. No one else's star. It's his star. And they saw it from the east. It's not that this star appeared in the east. We've heard that before. It's not that at all. They were from the east. And they saw his star appear. And they know that he has been born. And they, they want to come and they want to do what, what they in their minds are thinking anybody should want to do. You have a king. And he's not just any king, he's the king of kings. He is God. They, they probably knew from the Old Testament somehow that he was, the Messiah would be almighty God himself. We're told in Isaiah 9, 6 that the Messiah would be mighty God. And so they want to worship him. It's very possible that they could be, you know, pagans in the sense of, you know, just worshiping humans, kings. But I believe it's more than that. I believe they know it's supernatural. I believe they think that this is the God-man and the Messiah and so forth. So we're introduced to Herod the Great here in verse 1. Herod the Great was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. Remember Jacob and his brother Esau? Well, Esau had descendants. They were called the Edomites and so forth. That's, what, that's the background of Herod the Great. He was really into building projects. You go to Israel today, you see so many monuments and things and things that he worked on for years and years and years. Part of the reason why he expanded the, the temple, because Zerubbabel came and rebuilt the temple, but he expanded it. And part of the reason why is because Herod wanted to have the approval of the Jews, because they knew he was an Edomite. He was trying to win their approval. And he built many things for them. But he, I mean, his building projects are known to be unprecedented. You can go under the temple mount area or go next to the temple mount area today and still see the foundation stones that are about 25 feet high and about 25 feet wide perfectly hewn and put next to each other as the foundation stones of the temple there he expanded it out but he was also very paranoid <laughs> he murdered his wife he murdered the person that he had falsely accused of committing adultery with her. He, he murdered family members. He was always super paranoid about someone taking over for him. And, and, and thus we see him do that in our passage. And, he, and so they say here in verse 2, king of the Jews. Again, we're going to see this over and over, over and over through Matthew. King of the Jews. We're all introduced, when the, with these magi, we're all also introduced to these people that had this respect and they had love for the promised messiah these magi and they came from the east likely persia and many people believe and have evidence for them having heard this from all the way from daniel when daniel because remember israel in, in between 602 and 586 bc they were carried away to babylon that's persia modern day iraq they were carried away by nebuchadnezzar and so forth Three different campaigns he waged against them, and finally he, he came, overcame them completely in, in, in 586, and they were there for 70 years. So Daniel was there as a young man, and he was a Jew, and, and he had great influence in that area, 
and it's believed that he passed down those things and people were, became Jewish and so forth and passed down those traditions all the way down to these, these magi that came from the east. Of course, nobody knows absolutely for sure, but that's the, that's the, the common belief. So he says there, we have come, they, have, they say, we have come to worship him. Now, that's 500 miles. If they, at least 500 miles they have come to worship the Messiah. And what we're going to see with these magi is the purest form of worship that we can almost entirely in the whole Bible. I mean, you see the, the woman breaking that perfume and putting it on the Lord Jesus and, you know, and, and, and just crying and worshiping. That's a beautiful picture. Many people believe Job is the ultimate worshiper in the Bible because he worshiped God all the way through everything that he suffered and so forth. But I think these magi are in the top five, at least in my opinion, because they never get anything in return. And that's a beautiful picture of worship. They didn't get anything. They traveled all that distance to, to completely pour out worship, one directional, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and gave gifts of sacrifice and so forth. So it's a beautiful picture. We'll get into it a little bit more in a moment. Now Herod knew that we can't serve two masters, just as Jesus said. No one can serve two masters, and so we want to do something about this threat. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. He says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So again, Herod the Great was a very paranoid man. So he comes to the, he wants the chief priests and the the, the scribes and calls them together and he says, where is this Messiah going to be born? He didn't know, but they knew. And so they said to him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they quote Micah 5.2, and you can write in your Bible right there, Micah 5.2. It was written about 400 or 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it says in Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is a very specific Bethlehem. There was a Bethlehem in the Galilee. So God names ahead of time the very specific Bethlehem, because there were two of them there. And so it's interesting that these scribes and these priests and so forth, they're not investigating this. Isn't this a, a, a bad, sad commentary on these scribes and Pharisees? Here, they, were, they, lived, they didn't live 500 miles away. They lived five miles away. And they weren't investigating this. They weren't looking into this. Can you imagine the Magi being shocked? I remember going to Israel and sharing with the Jewish man about Jesus being the Messiah. And he just was amazed at all my excitement about Jesus fulfilling prophecies and all of that. And he just was completely hard-hearted and indifferent towards it. And I was just shocked. I was just running into person after person, so excited to be there and so excited to be in the land where the Messiah came. And they weren't looking for him. They weren't interested at all. At best, they were indifferent. And it's sad. It's the same type of response today. People aren't looking for him. They're, they've heard about him. They've heard about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. People have their, you know, blow up, uh, what do they call those, uh, those uh, 
nativity scenes. You know, the Costco ones where Joseph looks like the abominable snowman and, you know, and they're, they're, you ever seen those big blow-up nativity scenes? I mean, if you have one, God bless you, but they're just like, wow. And every, a lot of people have heard about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but are they searching for him? Are they going out of their way to travel, to whatever it takes in life in terms of their heart and their, and their humility to come to worship him and to sacrifice an offering of praise and, and, and their lives to him? Not many people are. They've heard about it, and, they, and it's so close to them, just like with these Pharisees and just like these scribes and priests. It's so close. Salvation can be so close to a person, but yet it's still an infinite distance they're infinitely distant away because they won't turn their heart to him. And it's a very, very sad commentary. Bethlehem means house of bread. And it's David's hometown. And this whole, him quoting this scripture, Matthew quoting this scripture and so forth, and demonstrating that Jesus is the son of David, it has David written all over it. And, and the fact that, that the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem has David it just inter, intertwined through every part of it. Because notice that it says there, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Now you remember in Beth, when, Kings, or when Samuel, a prophet, went to Bethlehem. God told him to do that. He was looking to anoint the next king. And he went through all the sons. And, and David was the last son. I think he was the seventh son. He wasn't even there. His father didn't even think enough of him to even have him there. And so here Samuel is, you know, he's going before these different guys. They look great. They look very charismatic. They have it all, all together. And, and they look like they just would play the part as king and so forth. And, and God says, I haven't anointed any of them. And he's like, well, is there another one to, his, to Jesse, his, David's father? Is there another? Oh, yeah. He's, the, he's out in the field tending the sheep. He's the least. That's the Hebrew word. It's younger, but it's also least, like he's the, the least. And it's interesting that he prophesies about the coming Messiah, talking about coming from Bethlehem, and he's going to sit on David's throne, and he is a man of humility, and who's, who walked in such a way of humility to be the least, to, 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 to take the lower place, to take the, the lesser seat, to be born in humility, to identify with the poor. It's interesting that, he, that this would match up completely in this, in this way. You might overlook the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew's saying you might have overlooked him, but he has prophetic, he's fulfilled prophecy. You might have overlooked him, just like David was overlooked. He's someone that's humble. He's someone that is someone that you wouldn't be expecting. I mean, David was a shepherd, right? He was also a shepherd. In these verses, it talks about this ruler will shepherd my people Israel. David didn't go to king school. How do you learn to be a king? How, how does God train a man to be a king in terms of his kingdom and his, his church and his economy and so forth? He makes him be a shepherd. It's interesting. He's a shepherd. And, and the Lord Jesus is the greatest shepherd ever, being born and trained to be someone under Joseph's teaching as a, as a boy, he'll receive that teaching to be a servant. In addition to having that heart, of course, as God in human flesh, it's a place of humility. How did Moses get his training? 
his BSD degree, his backside of the desert degree. That's not original. That's why it's good. I always say that. But, but, but caring for sheep. 40 years of caring for sheep. That was his preparation time to lead the people of Israel. Same as David. So it's just like the heart of God to reveal this to Jews at this time through Matthew that don't, don't be surprised by this one that comes that you didn't expect. He didn't look the way you may have thought he would look. You know, Isaiah tells us that there was nothing beautiful about him that we should desire him, talking about the Messiah. He was not super good looking. Just like David has mentioned his readiness or his redness or whatever. It's so many parallels there. It's beautiful. Now look what, um, look what Herod does, verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So he interview, interviewed them. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Liar, liar, pants on fire, hanging from a telephone wire. You remember that one? got to keep adding to it. I mean, it got pretty long, but that's as far as I went. He's lying. He's not going to come and worship the Lord Jesus. He wants to kill him. And it says in verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. I love commentators and people trying to make this into some natural star. Oh, it was a supernova. You know, it was some, you know, there must have been, they get in all the calculations. like, can God just make a star and just have it be 20 feet off the ground if he wants, or 50 feet or 100 feet or even hundreds of feet, whatever it was, can he do that? Yes, of course. It was a supernatural thing. It's dangerous to always look for a natural explanation for something that God's doing, because many times he doesn't use natural phenomenon. Now here's where the modern day nativity scene, the Costco blow-up dolls, and, uh, you know, the, your nativity scene may get a little off because this is not the same night that happens. I mean, all of this happens not the same night that Jesus was born, as we see. You know, we can, and if you want to have that nativity scene correct, you can have the wise men really far away from, <laughs> from, from the, the, the manger and so forth because it took a while. So you can, like, if you want to place it across your lawn and put the magi, like, on the neighbor's lawn. You know, then they're approaching, you know, and then, you know, that might be biblical or whatever. But this is weeks, if not months, after the birth of Christ. The very beginning of our chapter says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is after. The word child there is mostly used for toddlers and older children. So this is, there's no shepherds mentioned. There's no camels. We don't even know how many magi there were. We always see that, you know, there's three because there's three gifts. We don't know that. We have no idea. It could be that way. Could have been two magi coming, bringing three gifts. It could have been 20 magi coming, bringing three gifts. There are very specific gifts, as we'll get into in a moment. But we don't see a stable anymore either. Look at verse 11. It says that they were in a house. The Lord, it says in verse 11, where are we at here? Let me go down. Verse 11. And when they went into the house. Yeah. So they weren't in a stable anymore. They were in a house. So this is a whole different picture here. And then verse 10 says, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. 
So this is, you can look at this and see this as kind of a model of praise and worship. We like to talk about praise and worship. And praise is praising God and being rejoiceful and so forth, and you're always worshiping. Our whole life supposed to represent worship, of course. But praise is more of a kind of a spontaneous thing where you, you know, express your heart to God and celebration and, and so forth. And the English words here in verse 10 don't do justice to what's going on here because in the, in the original language, it's, they're not holding back at all. They're letting it go. These, these magi are just crying out and worshiping God and being demonstrative about it. Um, you know, it's, they're expressing everything, all of who they are. You know, we kind of picture they're, they're, they're like, you know, like an Englishman butler, you know. Oh, great, look what's happening, wonderful. This is the king of the Jews, and let's worship him, you know. And it's not like that at all. They are bowing down. They are crying out to God. They are worshiping God. They are, this is very Eastern. We're Western, so we're a lot more conservative and so forth in many ways. Man, when in, in Eastern societies, when there's a funeral, when someone dies, they rip their clothes, they throw dust on their head. They're, they're expressive. It's a little bit different for us. Even their weddings, are, they, they, they get out of control at their weddings when they're just like celebrating and so forth. That's just how they are. And so there's, a, there's this boldness in expressing worship and not holding anything back. And sometimes we can think that if we express our emotions, somehow we're getting, we're getting out of balance or something like that. But all through the Old Testament, I mean, David's dancing before the Lord. I mean, look at all the different psalms, and we're going to look at one in a moment. But just think about the fact that they were just completely expressing their whole being. It wasn't just a, a mental, cognitive, cerebral thing that they were going through. They're supposed to love our, our God with our mind, but also with our soul and our strength and our heart. We're supposed to love him with all of us. And, and so they, were, they, were, they just couldn't believe it. They were rejoicing with everything in them. And then verse 11, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. Best picture for worship right here. Fell down. That's what the word means. It's a Greek word, proskuneo. You fall down, prostrate before God. They fell on their faces and they worshiped him. Imagine Mary and Joseph there. You have these people you don't know. They've come from hundreds of miles away they have expensive gifts they're going to know they're going to find out eventually and they bow down and just worship their son how would you feel if god worshiped your son if you have a son it's like no, you don't know him but they wouldn't have said that because he was sinless they wouldn't have said you don't know jesus you you wouldn't be worse no there was no there was no flesh flare-ups there was no tantrums there was no selfishness there was no any of those things that we experience at all they never had to put Jesus in a timeout. They never had to discipline him. He was obedient all the way. He never sinned, never dishonored his parents, never had a bad motive, nothing. This was perfect. God in human flesh. And they worshiped him. There are different ways to worship God. I want to highlight a couple different ways. Turn, hold your place here. Turn with me to Psalm 46. Not hearing enough pages turn. 46, Psalm 46. Verse 
pretty much in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Psalm 46, and I'll begin reading in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Now, they're going through something pretty heavy right here. And sometimes when you're going through heavy things, the expression of worship that the Spirit may lead you to express is something very, very different than what you may express in other times. Not One is not more spiritual than another. Sometimes we're just, in, in Romans 8.26, it tells us that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and utterings that words cannot express. So there are times where we just groan before him and we're still and we're quiet and we're, we just contemplate on him and worship him in our hearts. That's why we can never make a judgment about people's worship based on their outward. I mean, if they're, you know, playing games on their phone, I'm pretty sure that you can know that they're not engaging the Lord. But I'm talking about how they express it. There's many different ways because we always emphasize because it's biblical that it's of the heart. Worship is of the heart. We could be doing jumping jacks <laughs> for the Lord and, and, our, and, and have our hearts be so, many way, so far distant from him, it doesn't mean anything. And we, so we have to have the, a correct view of that. And I want you to see the last word of the verse there, Selah. And that, that's an interesting word. It appears 71 times in the book of Psalms. Psalms is, is, was Israel's hymn book. That was their hymn book. That's what they, they used to sing and worship the Lord, and they had music for those things. And so here, this word selah, it's a musical notation there. And what it does is it tells the musicians to play and the singers to pause to give the worshipers a chance to think about what they just sang, to digest it. Someone has said it means to think on that. And so sometimes Dave or whoever's leading worship will We'll have a time where there's just music going. That isn't our time to just say, wow, I didn't know they could do that. They're really good, and I'm going to be entertained. That's not what it's for. The purpose is, of, is it gives you a time to worship in your own words at that time. Say, say your own song, a new song to the Lord, and say things to him that are not with the words at the moment. But it also glorifies God because he's the one that invented music. But also it gives you an opportunity to really think about what you've been singing and the significance of what you've been singing. So that's all the way back into the notation of the Word of God here for us to pause and to think about things. We process things so fast. God doesn't want us to just fly through the deep themes of God, the deep truths of Him. He wants us to contemplate, to meditate, to chew on those truths, even in our worship. Now, what's interesting in Psalm 46, God's speaking there with that part that we read. He is speaking. <laughs> he is saying all those things. And so the worship leader is writing, or the worship, the person that's writing this, God is all of a sudden inspiring him. He's inspiring him to write everything that he writes, but he is speaking for God at this point, like kind of like a prophecy. And that happens about, out of 50, 150 Psalms, that happens about 15 times. It's about 10% of the Psalms God will like speak in the first person. And it's very important to know. And so sometimes God speaks to us and, and speaks to our hearts when we're in the middle of worshiping. Have you ever had that? You ever had when you're worshiping God speaking to you? Open up your heart when you're worshiping to him, worshiping him. Open up your heart to what he might want to say to you during your worship. 
As many times he will speak to your heart in the first person, I love you, I, I, I delight in you. You know, he'll speak to your heart. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so it's not just a, 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 a monologue when we're worshiping. It's a dialogue many times. He's showing us what, what, what we mean to him, how the words that we're singing are true about him. And we can go deeper into worship. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful way that God has set it up. So we can worship in that way silently. Now look at verse, uh, Psalm 47. Totally different way. Psalm 47, he says, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. Again, pause and think about it. The mus- musicians keep playing, and they would th- pause there. And the musicians would keep going, and the people would think about what he just had said. But here it's a totally different expression of worship. One psalm earlier, and I like that he puts them close together for a contrast. For one, be still, know that he's God. You know, the quiet worship, the contemplative heart, the heart-to-heart worship, the spiritual connection with God in the, in the quietness of our heart and just meditating upon him. But then there's other times where he'll lead us to clap our hands. Some people say it's not biblical to clap your hands. There you go. There's your biblical support. Oh, we can't shout. If we shouted, people might think that we're really rejoicing and we're really excited about something. You know, God made us emotional. You can't separate those things out. Now, we don't want to have emotional worship in the sense where now if we, if we can't emotionally connect with God, we can't worship. That's immature. But, but part of worshiping is, is expressing our emotions because it's part of who we are. We're supposed to worship him with everything, with all of who, of who we are to him. That includes our emotions. So at times, we'll be more emotional than others. The thing is, we want to put it in a little package, don't we? A little formula. It has to look like this. It has to be like this. God is so much more diverse in his word regarding worship and what it looks like. Sometimes people are bowing down. Sometimes people are lying flat. Sometimes people are kneeling. Everybody's standing in heaven when they're worshiping. Everybody's standing before God. When Moses was before the burning bush, when I believe the Lord Jesus in in the uh, pre-incarnate appearance, was speaking through that burning bush, he was told to take off his sandals. He was standing on holy ground. It's, it's biblical to stand. But, of course, worship is of the heart as well, so it's okay to sit. People get all turned around and put little formulas and rules and so forth. If The, the most consistent one would be bowing down and lying down prost, prostrate. Prostate? Not prostate. Prostrate before him and, and just worshiping him. And remember John in the book of Revelation, he falls down as though he's dead before the Lord Jesus. So this casualness in worship and this this legalistic, these rules and how it has to be, God has so much to say in his word about that as we grow in in worship. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 2, and let's continue in verse 11. He says, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these gifts were both practical and prophetic. They were practical because they were worth something. And they were, in a few verses, we're going to see that Joseph's going to be led to take his family to Egypt. 
So they were very practical. He could, they were worth something. He could use that to sustain them. But they're also prophetic because gold speaks of a king's crown. Frankincense, and, I, and I'm sorry for my mind because you know who you're dealing with here. I, it's hard for me to not think of Frankenberries. But, you know, I mean, they still have that cereal. I don't know. But, um, you know, frankincense is incense. That, or, did I say Frankenberries? No, I did. Okay, make sure I didn't miss up. Frankincense, seriously, I almost thought I said that. Frankincense is incense, and it's speaking of the priests and the, and, and, the, and the temple and so forth. And so they gave him frankincense, but they also gave him myrrh, which is, it is perfume, but it's what they would use to embalm. And you know, um, we didn't read this last week, but because it's in the parallel passage in Luke, when it says that they wrapped him in swaddling cloths, they would take those types of cloths take a, a corpse and put them over one another and they would put spices and there was like a hundred pounds of spices they put on the Lord Jesus' body and it would be um, a way that they would preserve the body and so forth. And so this would speak of his death and his sacrifice. So it would be prophetic. They were saying, by the Spirit I believe, they were saying that you're going to be a priest. You're going to be a, you, you are a king. You are a priest. You're, you have a high priest ministry and you're going to sacrifice, and you're going to die. And so they were prophetic, but they were very valuable and practical as well. Verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So Joseph was warned also. We see that in, in um, oh, we, we just read that. So he, he, he I mean, the, 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 the Magi, but they should go back another direction. But then it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So again, Joseph has a dream. We talked about it last week. He had a dream as well, but also God gave him Isaiah 7.14 as a biblical basis for his dream. It wasn't just a dream. He gave him scripture with it. He does it again. He gives him scripture, and it's Hosea um, 11, chapter, or, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. So he says, you need to do this, get out, and he does. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise man, was exceedingly angry. I bet he was. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. So again, Matthew's purpose is to show there's a biblical basis for all that happened to the Lord Jesus. That all of these things that happened to him, there's a biblical foundation and prophecies uh, related to that. And this, this wasn't the first time that genocide had happened in their history or in the history of the Bible. You remember Pharaoh did the same thing. All the baby boys were thrown into the river, and one was saved, and his name was Moses. So Moses was spared, just like the Lord Jesus was spared. Verse 19, 
But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now that, the same thing happened to Moses. It's amazing, these parallels and how things point to the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's not being missed by the Jewish audience that's reading Matthew's account here. Because in Exodus 4, verse 19, Moses was told to go back to deliver his people back to Egypt, where he was told this, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. And so he was, it was prophesied that I will raise up another prophet like Moses. So Jesus is fulfilling the fact that he is a prophet like Moses because much of the, what happened to Moses happened to the Lord Jesus. And the Jews would see all of these parallels. It would all make sense to them that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of this and Moses was a type of Christ. Verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So there were three sons that replaced Herod the Great. First, there was Archelaus, who reigned over Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. And then his other son, Philip II, he ruled the regions north of Galilee, mostly east of Galilee, and then Herod Antipas ruled Galilee and uh, Persia. And the main Herod in the he's the main Herod in the Gospel accounts. Herod Antipas. He was the one who put John the Baptist to death, and he was the one who examined Christ on the eve of his crucifixion. So Joseph hears that, and he is led to not go back to Bethlehem. And, and as you remember, they were in Bethlehem or Nazareth before they even went down to. Um, uh, Bethlehem. They, were, they lived in, in, in Nazareth. Now this quotation here, this scripture in verse 5, um, let's see where it is. He shall be called a Nazarene in verse 23. That isn't explicitly stated that we can see in the Old Testament. It could be, some people believe that it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 when he talks about that he would be a branch. Um, others believe that it was just uh, verbal prophecies that were handed down because he does say spoken by the prophets plural and so it wasn't just one place it was many places where prophets prophesied about the the coming messiah who would who would um, be called a nazarene but other people say and i tend to be in this category that it's really a reference talking about that he would be despised and he would be rejected because even in the the lord Jesus' time it was Nazareth was looked down upon. It's kind of like some people in San Francisco, how they look down on people in the valley here. You know, it's like, that's like Hickville, or, or, or that's like, uh, you know, who lives there, or, you know, a bunch of Okies, or whatever. They, they, you know, some people have pride about where they live. I mean, we all, I mean, I'm sure we have pride in some respects related to where we live at times or whatever, but Nazareth was looked down upon uh, in the New Testament. Remember uh, Nathaniel's? And he was told about the Messiah. He said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it had a really bad reputation. So it very well could be that the, that the prophets prophesied about one that would come that would be despised and rejected because of, of the reputation in part of where he was from. 
So especially the people in Jerusalem really looked down on the people up in the north in the Galilee area, really looked down upon that area. They, were, they thought they were so much better than the people that, that, that lived there. So the worship of these magi, beautiful picture of pure worship, didn't get anything in return, didn't get anything back, didn't worship him for what they could get. Last week I talked about the loaves and the fishes and how that crisis that was in his ministry that happened because they wanted to make him king by force because of him feeding them. And he said, you didn't, you're not following me because of me, you're following me because of the, the loaves and the fishes. And so that we have to worship him for the right reasons. We have to check our hearts. Sometimes we will do things for him and we're doing it for something that we're getting. And, and it's okay because he set things up in part for that. We do receive a blessing. He, he loves that we're blessed by our worship of him. But our supreme purpose and reason for worship, especially when we come together here, is for him. It's not for us. It's not supremely for us. We always say, oh, it's a nice thing. We worship him. prepares us for the word. That's true. But it's supremely for him to receive that worship. So the pure worship of sacrifice, giving something that's of value to him without any expectation in return, a beautiful picture of worship. And it's something that's convicting to us. Because sometimes we live our lives in a way where we're, do, we're, we're doing things for him because we think that we're going to you know, get something in return. That may be our primary focus, and it shouldn't be. We should be worshiping and loving him and giving and sacrificing and so forth because of who he is supremely. And anything he wants to do beyond that, that's between him and us. Beautiful picture. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would use these amazing verses, Lord, to help us to be worshipers. Help us to grow in our worship, Lord, to worship without expecting anything in return. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to grow as a church, individually. Help us to lead our families in a way that would represent worship. We pray for every child here, Lord, that they would grow up being familiar with worship songs, being familiar with seeing their parents be bold in expressing worship to you. Lord, help us to model that, Lord. And I pray for everyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you. In fact, if you're here today, you've never given your life to Christ. You may believe in God. You may believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins but you've never asked for forgiveness from him. You've never surrendered your life to him. You've never made a U-turn on the road of life and surrendered your life to him. He wants to give you salvation as a free gift. You can't earn it. You could never be good enough to out, outdo all your sin. And we're all born sinners, all of us. The standard of, 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 that we would have to meet to make it into heaven apart from Christ's forgiveness is perfection. And we've all fallen short of that. So if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you want to place your faith in Jesus to pay your way to heaven alone, not any religious works or not believing in God or anything like that, but just trusting in what he has done for you on the cross and you're wanting that forgiveness today. And, and by the way, you're not joining our church if you do this. It's between you and him. He may send you an entirely different church. But if you're here today and you've never asked forgiveness of your sins, you know you're a sinner, you know you've sinned against him, you know that you're guilty, and you need forgiveness, and you want that confidence that you're going to go to heaven when you die. But not only that, you want to follow him with your life and let him make your life into what he wants it to be because he has the best way to live. If that's you today, I want you to raise your hand, and I'll pray for you. Is there anyone here? 
Just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. There's one, two. Anyone else? Anyone, anyone else here? Let me pray for you. Actually, why don't you repeat after me a prayer, and if you mean it from your heart, if you're sincere, he'll hear that prayer and he'll save you. Repeat it out loud. God, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect. I am sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I believe you died for me on the cross. I believe you were buried and you rose again the third day. I surrender my life to you. And I pray that you would make me into the person you want me to be. I'll follow you all the days of my life. And I ask for the free gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now let me pray for you. Father, I pray for this man and woman. I pray, Lord, you'd fill them with your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would open up your word to them. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal how loving and gracious you are. I pray that you would show them, Lord, how, much, how great of a plan you have for their lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give them incredible confidence of how you can take their life and to make it into a, a beautiful trophy of your grace. I pray that they would go aggressively towards you and that they would seek you and they would talk to you and you would speak to them and that you'd give them a supernatural love for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would manifest yourself to them. Thank you that you've forgiven all their sins, every sin they've ever committed. Thank you that you paid for all the sins they haven't even committed yet. I pray that they would have great confidence in your grace, Lord, that your relationship with them is not based on their performance or lack of performance, but it's based on who you are and your love, and your power, and your grace. Help us as a family to love them and help them grow, Lord. We thank you for your unconditional love that you've, you've offered to them and given them in salvation. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give them a hand.